This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Mayor Enichachamim Schmusing with Rav Schiller. I'm here with, of course, with Rav Mayor Schiller. I'm not just a AI interlocutor. I am an actual living human being who has my own history. And I, of course, have an interest, especially in this next stage, as you move away from the Beshraga experience and towards what you said was always your goal with Skver, and especially your marriage. You married to a, a girl from my hometown, Memphis, Tennessee, and and of course I've already mentioned to you off pod the intimate knowledge really that I have of of your family. Families were very close. The family that of your your wife's family and my family, my parents, and I'm interested in how that happened because you know Memphis is not exactly the the stomping grounds for the square Bukhrim. I want to hear a little bit about that, and I hope you also come back. Uh, to Mr. Briggs, who, you know, the, the, the tzaddik of Shloyma, Stephen Hill, and how he continued to uh, sort of like be a sort of guide and affect your life in, in, in those years. So take us uh, from that last year of high school and into square. I had been in Beshaga until what would have been the middle of 12th grade, although I stopped attending secular classes at the end of 11th grade. And I had decided that I want to finally get to Square. Now, Square was a little doubtful as to whether or not I should make this final jump. And they recommended that maybe I might go to Eretz Israel to either Slonim or to the newly founded Rachmistrivki Yeshiva in Yerushalayim Ma'arinayim. But I told them, listen, why do I have to travel to the other side of the world to discover whether or not this final jump is going to work or not, uh, we can do it right here in, in New Square. What was their Svarov, Mayor? What, why did they think that somehow the Slonimer Yeshiva would somehow give you an easier entry into Square? Or were they trying to maybe hope that maybe you stayed in Slonim? <laughs> well, I, can, I can't tell you that for sure either way. I, I think that they felt, in terms of Slonim, that it might have met some level of Lithuanian intellectualism, which Square might not have afforded, being primarily, uh, you know, Hungarian jewelry. That was my first thought, too. Uh, That was actually my first thought. And, you know, I think many of our listeners are are probably more familiar with Slonim today than many were in in your time because of the Nesiva Sholem. And uh, at that time, he was uh, an active force in the yeshiva at that time. Absolutely. Uh, Rav Shlomo Greenbaum, who afterwards became the uh, dean of the Yeshiva Spring Valley, he was also somebody who had been attracted to Square. He was a Yeshiva Spring Valley Beishraga boy. His father was the dean of Yeshiva Spring Valley, Rabbi Bernard Greenbaum, and he had become attracted on his own to Square, and Square had sent him to Slunem. Uh, before probably the early 60s sometime. Can, can I share something which is totally off the wall? It reflects, I guess, my penchant for creating connections. 
I learned, of course, in the Mir Yeshiva a number of years later. Not that many, considering how many decades have passed. But it was in the the mid and late 70s when I was learning in the Mir. And one of the things as an American boy I had difficulty with was finding a comfortable place to learn, a comfortable place to use the facilities, Yubi Moichel. And to me, I always went to Slonim because that was, a, a, it was a more modern building. It was a building that, and, and the bathrooms, Yubi Moichel were actually, I don't know if you've ever been there and seen them, but they were of a higher ilk than what you got in the Mir Yeshiva. So it was worth it for me to make my way through Meir Sharm and to learn in Slonim, often uh, on Shabbosim and other times, just because of Eis Lasses Lashem. What I'm saying is not only did it have a certain intellectualism, it might have been it wasn't so steeped in the ramshackle poverty nature of the rest of that area. And and could be that was another factor why they thought this might be something that an American boy could be pastor There's no question that the Nasiba Shalom uh, was concerned with that also, that in many ways Slonim was looked at askance by the rest of Meisharim. Uh, the spoken language amongst the Talmudim was, it was Hebrew, not Yiddish. They tend to be a bit more concerned with their physical appearance, the appearance of the building. So there was that fusing of intellectual modernism with the gosh mystic of modernism. Shlomo Greenbaum, who, as I say, went there, supplied me during those mid-60s years when I was in Beishraga, he supplied me with what were then the mimeographed, uh, stenciled versions of the Nesiva Shalom's early schmuzen. And uh, I was very, very taken by it. Uh, he recommended that I get a Teresovus, and I remember the Hakdama that the Nesiva Shalom wrote to the Teresovus, which I very much liked. I saw it as a more orderly presentation of Hasidish of thought, and it did attract me a bit. But was that the square intention? I don't know. Marinayim could have just been the square desire to help uh, the Rachmastifka Rebbe of that time, Rabbi Yochensha, to help him to build up his fledgling yeshiva. Uh, but again, I can't tell you because... You know, again, this is really the, what was, but I'm sure you did a couple of little Robert Frost speculations of what would have been that road had you taken it, what would have what would have occurred? Uh, clearly, it would not have led, I guess, us to be talking here. Although you never know, there is something about Eretz Yisrael's grip that it has on you, and you know it, it doesn't just grow on you, but you become absorbed into it in a in, in a very strong way. So that didn't happen. No. So you pushed back and said, "No, I want the I want I want Skver. I want this this place." So. You told me you never graduated from high school. So, so basically that year was over and. No, no, Pesach, Pesach. It was, it was pre-Pesach. Um, Purim, I walked out of Beishraga and devoted myself to mastering my Yiddish and Beis Marishalian. And, uh, I kept pestering Square and I kept pestering the Racham Srifke Rebbe, who was then the Manal and pestering the Square Rebbe, who had just become Rebbe half year before. And uh, I huffed and I puffed, and finally they let me into the yeshiva, uh-huh. Pesach 1969, which would have been the end of my senior year when I've still been in high school. Ah, uh-huh, I see. Uh, we talked off pod yesterday, and let's talk about this a little because, again, it's something that, you know, I feel an affinity to. Um, you said you took sort of like a crash Yiddish course because Beshraga, although I'm sure the people spoke Yiddish in the Heim, the language of instruction was English. 
by all the Rabbeim. Except for Rabbi Schwab, as long as we might as well mention Rabbi Schwab, about whom a new biography has just come out. Rabbi Schwab gave the uh, um, the, the Shir in ninth grade in Yiddish, and Rashmul Feivelson, who was Rashiva, gave any public lecture, his Sugya Pilpul Shir, as well as any Musa Shmuzen, and his Shalashudas presentation, anytime he spoke in public, he presented it in Yiddish. And again, the Talmudim were somewhat capable of following this in those days, but eventually uh, both had to end the practice. And also, let's not forget that especially if it's a sugi you've learned already, uh, the Yiddish connecting words don't necessarily create an obstacle for a sharp kid to figure it out, even though he's not fluent in Yiddish. So to hear a shir in Yiddish is not so difficult. But you wanted to immerse yourself in Yiddish, I assume, because the camaraderie, the people you'd be with, the people that the the ups and downs, the smiles, the frowns, they have to become second nature to you now. That's a little bit of learner and Lowe's uh, my fair lady there for you. And I guess, don't, don't start because I have a certain affinity for Cockney. So uh, my fair lady is a war on Cockney English. I will yes. get that every time. Yeah. You know, but, but, but yeah, well, again, you know, I, I know that the Bernard Shaw fans will consider um, that play a bastardization of what was good uh, and, and schmaltzy. But that song means a lot to me, which is, you know, um, getting, you know, or let's, let's go with Rogers and Hammerstein, getting to know you from the king and I, you needed to get to know and have second nature in Yiddish. So how did you do this? I mean, you're a smart guy, but how were you able to accomplish this? I had um, three books of Svarim. One was the Beisihuda Chomish, which was the Yiddish Chomish in those days, which was more of a Central European Yiddish, but sufficient for my needs at that time. And I had a Mishnayas with Ivritaych, which had Yiddish translation. You're talking about the Petrushka Mishnayas? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, let's doff our caps for Simcha Petrushka. Talmud of, of course, the incredible Menachem Zemba, and uh, and really Kahati cribbed from him like crazy. <laughs> Kahati was it was a Talmud Chassid, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, and also I had the um, what was it? Um, wine was it Weinreich? The College Yiddish text. Wine, Reich or Wine River, I'm not sure. But anyway, he had a college Yiddish tech. So you immersed yourself. It was just, you weren't trained. You didn't have like a teacher who came in. You just read like crazy. And basically, the chavrusas that I arranged for myself were all Hasidisha types. And their instruction was to not allow me to say a word of English. And nor, neither they nor I. So I had Saddam around the clock and basically, in various Gemaras, which were only in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of like that that post Pesachman that not only served you as a a way to imbibe uh, Talmudic methodology and logic, but also to be able to speak the tongue. Um, at least put put this way, I'm sure even after that was finished, you weren't actually you know speaking like like from Unzera, but well enough to be able to not be earmarked as a tin horn. Right, and also understand it's very yeshiva. And that was it. You sunk or you swam. Nobody in Sfer Yeshiva was speaking. Probably almost all were not capable of speaking <laughs> English. So it was either, you know, you spoke Yiddish or you had no friends. So it was uh, sink or swim in Sfer Yeshiva post-Pesach of 1969. Uh, so seeing yourself sufficiently able to converse, uh, when was it that you entered the square yeshiva as official Talmud? Uh, after Pesach 1969, we were learning uh, Masech Sukkah, the first parak, under Ramosha Green, the Rosh Yeshiva, 
was the Manal, and I came in there um sukkah in the morning, uh from five till seven in the afternoon, which was Hilchos Muktzah, and Lulavar Gazal, which I learned Bakias at night with Remechel Steinmans, who is now a square of Dian and Borough Park. Uh, that was my day, and uh, it was sink or swim, and I relished every single minute of it. There was a Yidin square by the name of Ramesha Weiss, Ramesha Batlin, who was an alto Polish of Chusid, who used to prava a Sidalich by the yard site of many, many Rebbes after 10 o'clock at night, so after Yeshiva. If you wanted to go sit by Ramesha, you went there, and I went there. I think to almost all of his Sidalach, uh, Shabbos before the Yard site, before, uh, a Yantif, we would go to the Rachmasif Kedeba and, uh, sit with him and he would talk about the Bal Yard site or the, or the Yantif. And then, of course, Shabbos, there were three Titian. So all in all, that combined with Ramosha Green's Ian and strictness and all these other things that were un- enriching my liberal arts of Judaism, uh, all in all, it was, uh, I might say the sweetest time of my life. And even though I am sure just, just to be able, uh, to swallow everything that you were doing, you had to limit some of your other interests and other, uh, areas that, you know, that percolate in your head, right? You had to, I'm sure you couldn't uh, be reading, uh, you know, some of the, the belle trace of, of, of the type of works or even the national, you know, even, uh, Buckley or any of that stuff during that, those first intense years, right? Absolutely true. I still subscribe to National Review at home. And when I would come home, Ben Osmanem here and there, get a new change of clothing or whatever, I would have, um, National Review and American Opinion. And maybe a couple. So basically, you know, the Ellsberg papers and all the stuff that was, uh, you know, all, you know, the, the, you know, against the war, all that material that was, that was in the public face in 69 and 70 and 71, that sort of like went over your head. You were immersed in the yeshiva, basically, right? You weren't a hundred, a hundred percent. 68, I was still in Beishraga and I remember feeling betrayed by Goldwater and Tao because they supported Nixon over Reagan. So I still had my passions of the time. And in 72, I was shocked beyond belief that National Review did not support John Ashbrook and his challenge to Nixon. But again, as you say, it was a much more distanced uh, relationship to those interests than I'd had before. Sure. I mean, look, it's almost like the way you're describing it, despite the the efforts and energies that you put into learning, even in Breuer's and then, and then later in Beshraga, you feel that you really started to flex your muscles and really feel yourself a thinker in Talmud and and in Machshav and Chassidus and everything really in those years in Skiver. And you're right. We all go back in many ways and tap into those those incredible fruitful years where the growth arc is off the charts. And, you know, we think it's going to take us forever. It doesn't always, you know, many times you know, we, we don't necessarily hit a glass ceiling, but we recognize that injection of of energy that can only come with youth and excitement. So uh I you know I, I understand what you're talking about, although from from somewhat of a different perspective. The avoida of Skiver was obviously different, not only coming and listening uh, to the stories of Tzadikim, but probably the Prishus and the Avoida Hashem was was on a different level than you had seen before. No 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 question about that. Uh also the great emphasis on uh on Anova, humility, 
and Havish Yisrael. But certainly, um, precious is not a bad term because you couldn't be seen as a serious Yungaman or a serious Balabas even if you were Magushim Dick in any way. I remember there was once a time when the Talmud Yeshiva staged a mini mutiny over what they regarded as a poor supper. It might have been served on Sunday night with sort of the leftover chicken from Shabbos with immersed in tomato sauce. And we didn't like this. And there was a mini protest staged. And I, the whole shtetl went crazy. I mean, as to how we dare do this. And I remember Amaya Brown, who was an old Hungarian Yid, the Grosser Chussid. It sounds like Kent State, uh, upstate. <laughs> yes, it was. It was yes, Kent State. yes, it was Kent State up there. Well, well they took the five ringleaders who had actually <laughs> thrown the food into the garbage Friday night when they went in the kitchen, and they sent them all home, and they had to come back with $150 knas. This is 1969, right? Maybe 1970. And they had to come back with that knas, or else they would not be readmitted into the yeshiva because they had thrown out that food on uh, on Shabbos Friday night. But now, my Brown, I remember, said the next day, and he said, I'll do the Yiddish first, and I'll translate his Yiddish much better, the Hungarian accented Yiddish. He says, Vuz vilin di bucherim, me get noch pita to the broid, me get pita to the broid, vuz vilin zay, vuz vilin Which means, translate, says, what do these boys want? They're given butter with their bread every day. What do they want now? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to tell you again, speaking about the, the, those periods in my life, I remember with uh, some fondness the challakugel that we were served in Yeshiva Smir. Again, I was not yet 18 years old. And what happened on Shabbos was the chalas were uh, collected and by Mitzvah Shabbos, they were put into a special place. And you knew Sunday or Monday, you'd be getting Chalakugel, which was, uh, we ate it, believe me. <laughs> and, you know, and we liked it. <laughs> we, we, we didn't much of a chance. I'll tell you, I, I used to eat by Yidra Moshe Eisenbach, who was actually the, the current square of Rebbe Shavrus at that time. And again, it was a very simple, meager gashmias. On Shabbos, on Shabbos, the family was treated to orange soda, which was not allowed during the weekdays. But how were they treated to it? Every uh, boy and girl in the family, after the flesh, got a shot glass full of orange soda. So much so that on Matzah Shabbos, there was still orange soda left in the cot orange soda bottle which uh, was left over because it was rationed out in shot glasses throughout Shabbos. I see. I see a faint amount of Fanta indeed. Okay. <laughs> it clearly was something for your sensibilities to uh, to be exposed to, especially in coming from the middle class life that you had, uh, the way you grew up as a kid. And, you know, I guess it, it's a testament to how much this meant to you, that you were willing to to take it and to accept it. No, nobody, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just interrupting one more time. Tell me, sorry. Sure. But, um, you know, it's brought down from the Arizal that one should not use a towel after the mikvah air of Shabbos. Now, somehow in the ultra-Hasidic circles, this was expanded to post any mikvah that one should not use a towel. So, again, we did not use towels except on our hair because of trillin, and trillin shouldn't get wet. And I remember I had a friend of mine who we regarded as a very magician dick of fancy mensch, he would tell me years later that he smuggled a towel to the <laughs> under his suit because he was so embarrassed. 
to bring a towel to the mikvah. Based on uh, the, the time you got married, you were a mere 20 years old. You know, I tell people I got married, you know, when I was um, 22 and people uh, are shocked. And you told me just a couple of minutes before we started recording that you were from the older guys at this point. So tell me, what was what was the drive to get married? And again, uh, how was it that the that the Southern Bell ends up uh, in your lap? The, the average uh, marriage age in Square, as I think among almost all Hasidim in those days, was 18 for boys and 17 for girls. And uh, if you got to 19... It was it was not not good, and if you got to twenty, I mean, forget about it. It was almost unheard of if you got to twenty and not be married. So again, uh, they were trying. Fransquez trying to find a good shidduch for me, and there was a belzechusad by the name of. Uh, Before you get into that, let me just interrupt you for just for a second. And again, for our listeners, and I know most of them are, are you know, obviously know the the attitudes of Chazal. But is it based on the Gemara and Kedushin about? based on the fact that you can't really, you have to learn batahara and that we know what sort of natural urges are going to be creeping into your head. And obviously to, it'll be kol yom of bavera, you know, kol yom of bavera. That, that was really the attitude, why you needed to get married that young. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely correct. And uh, there was a strong sense that, that, listen, there was absolute and total segregation of the sexism total there was one night in the middle of the week when we were allowed to go to the grocery store and at that point it was emptied out no one else could go just tell me that you because there was no contact site it's nothing to do with any any non non many females no matter how much you try to suppress something there is that desire it's not like Cetus is as prudish as people think and therefore it's understandable and, and i think there's a uh a misconception i think and you might have done a lot to d- dissipate that misconception about the sort of strange relationship see them have with their wives as if it's some sort of dehumanizing one. It actually is very, very loving and giving and open in many ways. So the idea of getting married young isn't a, a cultist type of mentality. It really is a way, I, I think, to to sort of give a, an injection of not just take away the tivus, but also become a mensch in a way and, and be misnag becheset to somebody else. You, I might be off barking up the wrong tree here. You tell me. Could be. I, I've never thought of it in those terms. It's possible. It's possible. And I know that Rebzgan Avracha was very emphatic that everybody had to remain in Kodal for at least two years after marriage because he said something along the lines of there has to be the first years spent within the wife at home with Torah, with learning. So there, there was a sense that those formative years with the wife are very, very essential. Mm-hmm. So now one of the things that has been a pet peeve of mine, and we all know what it comes from, Rameer, is that a Balchuve never gets the schmaltz and, and pitter from the miyuchosim. Despite the love that they give to Bali Tshuva, there's a red line. You have that in Chabad, and it's a very glaring thing. The stipler wrote excessively about this, and he was very upset about it. And he is he was machadesh that, and again, I'm going to put things on the table, the, the, the humrus of Ben Anida, the humrus of other sorts of things, as much as they loved you, but, oh, well, we can't give them to one of the, the typical chsidisha shaduchim because... Soif Kosov, he has a pgam based on his history. Again, the, the stipler was machadish, and I think 
so powerfully for his door and for our door that when you see somebody is a is a is a Ernst Ernst Bentoira, that clearly he has been misgaber on whatever sorts of uh, proclivities the zivug that wasn't so hogoin produced, and therefore the proof is in the pudding. And I think Rebbe Yashiv. Uh, seconded that type of approach. But that is not the case in any of the Chesidish Mekayimists. They, right? Again, they have not budged an inch as far as that goes. And again, I'm not trying to open up any wounds, but no, I think... No, no, I, I, I think you're you're correct. Although, the only thing I would say is that the Chesidish of 2023 is not the Chesidish of 1969. So, I think there has been movement on many areas, this one of them, in the Hasidic Shevelt, although not in the hardcore Hasidic Shevelt. In other words, the, the example that I always say is Phyllis Terrace and Jefferson Avenue, which are the headquarters of Square and Visions. But, but once you get outside of the hardcore and you get to your Ammons and Chestnut Ridges and Pomonas and so forth, I think there is a lessening of some of these uh, standards and other standards as well some positive, some negative, but there is always change in society as much as we like to deny it. Yeah, so so again, I get back to again. So how was how were they able to find Mylant's woman? <laughs> how were you able to find that without going into too many personal details if you don't want to? Sure. No, there was a uh, a fellow who was collecting money for Torah Vidas. Uh, his name was Finkelstein. I don't recall his first name, but he happened to come to Memphis and my father-in-law, my mother-in-law were, again, you know better than I do almost, were the staunch, staunch Orthodox Torah loyalists of Memphis. They were both Balichuv themselves. And uh, there was no aspect of it. My mother-in-law subscribed to Jewish Observer and the Jewish Parent, which was the old term of Sarah magazine, and the Jewish press. And my Schwer opened the shul every day and learned, uh, learned with great Hasmada. So again, well, let me just mention their names, if you don't mind. Doris and Jean Cohen. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and wonderful, wonderful people, people that I just tear up thinking about them because, like I said, we, we were, our families were very close. Yes. Wonderful. The great story about, you know, when people speak about the miracle of Memphis, they are part of that incredible miracle of Absolutely. Southern, really real Southern Jews who, who through the light of Rav Nota Greenblatt's uh, fire and others uh, really were miscariv to, to Torah in ways that were outstanding and, and beyond most people's ability to, to comprehend how devoted they were. There, but there, yeah, was so, thing, there was a thing called the Gatlinburg Retreat. I don't know if you're familiar with that of name. Of course I'm familiar with yeah. it. So, <laughs> so let me, let, I'll tell you what the Gatlinburg Retreat is. Yeah. Memphis, although it now is sort of receded, uh, in terms of its uh, leadership in, as a Jewish city, uh, at that time, Memphis, uh, because of its strong proportion of orthodoxy, and many of my own uh, relatives who who had become you know, who become wealthy, uh, they conceived of the idea of having right before the winter began a a retreat at the one of the capital, really city of the Smoky Mountains, and this retreat was. Um, attended by not only uh, the Memphis Jewry, who had to basically drive the 400-some miles there, but also yes. Jews from Atlanta, Jews from Chattanooga, Jews from Louisville, uh, Jews from Nashville, uh, Asheville, all the Vils over there, Savannah, and even Jews from Florida, 
And the Gallenberg Retreat was a place not only to enjoy yourself in a, a pretty nice hotel, a Holiday Inn at the time, but to uh, to sit around the swimming pool on Shabbos, not going swimming, and hearing lectures from various uh, stalwarts of the Torah world who would come in and speak. Um, I attended w- one, and um, I was really, in a way, ignited by the ideas I heard when I was – uh, I think I was around nine years old when I went. Basically, that same time that we're talking about, yeah. and uh, I heard her Shlomo Feinfeld speak. Yes, yes, he was a regular. My mother-in-law used to say we had everybody there from Rabbi Gifted to Rabbi Rackman. <laughs> she understood the, the nuance the, there. The yeah. nuance there. Yes, yes. Right. So, so that was Gatlinburg, and it was, by the way, the biggest Talmud Chacham who was attending there was the Mashgiach. And that was Ravnota Greenblatt. Ravnota shunned the spotlight, although he could wipe the floor literally in learning with almost any of these names of the people, except Rav Gifter, perhaps. But Ravnota served as the chief cook and bottle washer. He went there and walked around to make sure, you know, to make sure everything was kosher, that stood in the kitchen. Um, so it was, it was really an incredible experience. That, that was sort of like self-generated. She would tell stories about the Gatlinburg retreat and this this rabbi and that rabbi. And uh, again, she never quite morphed into saying Rav or Reb. They they remained rabbi. 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 <laughs> that's right. That's correct. Rabbi. <laughs> they stayed that way. Rabbi Belsky, Rabbi Greenblatt. Rabbi Belsky, yes. <laughs> and But every one of them. And uh, she would say over things, and she had learned that that's the only. Right. So, so how did your how did your wife uh, become into the orbit, which is not just the yeshivish orbit that so many of the Memphis girls had, but how did you know how how did it actually come as to be suggested to a a chassid? How did right. that happen? Well, again, you have to understand that uh, my father-in-law and mother-in-law they were open to all aspects of orthodoxy. Uh, they would go there to Israel. They had certain people they supported there in Meishar, and there was, to them, if you were from, you were in. And the more from you were, maybe the more in you were in. So, in other words, the, the Cohens, with their openness of heart, they didn't recognize these sort of, what we what we call significant differences. To them, these differences were petty. It's all about being being a good from Jew. Petty. That's right. That's right. The more Torah, the better davening, uh, the less talking, the more uh, chesed, the better you were. And it didn't matter what you looked like. They they sought Anskite. My shrimp in particular fell in love with Square. I mean, he couldn't get enough of it. So again, there was not, your point is a very good point that since their measuring rod was the Judaism they had absorbed at the Gatlingburg retreat and the Jewish observer and the Jewish press, etc. These distinctions were, were petty, as so, you say. So somebody, a Meshulach for Tyre Vidas, who knew about your 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 wife as a girl growing up in a in a, a nice home in Memphis, somehow approached the Square administration or approached you? No, it's, it's, uh, approached the Cones and first. Somehow knew about Mayor Schiller, who might may yes. what was the what was in his so, well, let, me, let me go back a second because there's a Hashkacha Pratius here. This man's son whose name was uh, Leibel Finkelstein, was a, a Belza who was a son-in-law to somebody in Square. This was at a time when Square was still allowed to take son-in-laws from other Hasidic groups. 
in the end, this would provoke a whole loyalty, security, sort of Red Scare era in Square. And uh, these guys eventually all moved out. I think every last one of them had to move out eventually. But for that brief period in the 60s, they were there. So Leibel Finkelstein knew of me, and he told his father, who told the Cones, would that Red Scare purge have taken place in Square uh, two, three years earlier? Mm-hmm. Both it wouldn't have happened. A shidduch has arranged. And, and, and your wife has flown out to New York, or you actually make the trek down to Memphis? Well, how did that happen? He was in seminary in Baltimore then, because the Cones sent all their daughters. They did not consider a, a post-high school or even high school, I think, for some of them. Right, because right, although Memphis and, yeah. your, and your, your wife and I are both proud products of, of the Memphis Hebrew Academy, the Hebrew Academy was basically programmed until the eighth grade. It was only in 1966 that the yeshiva was conceived of, and that was my first chance to see Ramesha Feinstein. And I, Baruch Hashem, was zochet to see him sitting in a metal chair uh, in a somewhat of a hot uh, un, unshady playground where he was sitting as the yeshiva was unfold. But this was obviously a fledging institution. And it was something that many of the Memphis families, including my parents, uh, weren't necessarily ready to sign their kids up for. The, therefore, the Cohens uh, opted, although now there is, you know, there's been a high school there for many years named after my grand aunt, uh, Goldie Margolin. They sent it to the Beis Yaakov of Baltimore. That's where, so she was in Rabbi Steinberg's uh, uh, school. So Yes, that's correct. So she came up to New York, and um, there was a fellow who was a teacher in Breuer's by the name of uh, Elbaum, who um, was diving into Square himself at that time. So he knew me from the high school years in, in Square. So his home functioned as a place where I would meet uh-huh. my future wife. So it wasn't like that you were going to take in uh, the sights and sounds of a Manhattan streetscape. Basically, it was like no. meeting in a, a Eiffel Sanua in somebody's dining room. Yes, completely. Right. Yeah, obviously, you've been married for many, many years. Um, I would assume, you know, your wife was quite happy to have someone who could who could speak the, if not the king's English, but uh, uh, the English that was probably her, the way she thought and spoke. And, 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 and right, that was a, a big advantage that you were able to have that sprach together. Yes, uh, surely. And again, my my Schwer and Schwiger, uh father or mother-in-law, they, um, it just from learning. Like I, always, again, I heard better, about you I mean, often from them. They would always talk about they said they would always talk about they talked about the other son in laws too, but they talked about you in, in a great way. So they they supported us all in Kailo for many, many years. He worked long, long hours in that store in Torrell, Arkansas. Torrell, Arkansas. T U R R E L L. Not not that far from the bridge. Not that far. No, no, not at all. No, no. No, and he he that way he kept that store open crazy hours in an all-black area of the town in which, as he would put it, he would have to make sure once the first of the week hit or the first of the month, he had to get quickly out and do his collections because once you let them keep the checks too long... They bounce. Yeah, what what, what was the store again? I, I'm, I'm, oh, it was, it was, a, it was a furniture uh-huh. store, and which he sold on credit to these right. people. And uh, he was he collected... He, 
schlepped the furniture to their homes and he schlepped out to collect it if they didn't pay their meet their payments yeah, and he uh, carried a gun. Look, I think I should just tell our listeners, many people are familiar with Memphis uh, being close to the Mississippi River. And the, Memphis really uh, abets two other states. It abets the Mississippi and Arkansas. And the um, so if you go south in Memphis, you go into Mississippi. If you go directly uh, west, you cross into Arkansas. And uh, the environs, you know, to the south of Memphis and to the west of Memphis, uh, like West Memphis, Arkansas, Forest City, Arkansas, these are cities which can, I think, really be called suburbs of Memphis. And most of them are were, at least in those times, very economically straight uh, they, they were not, they were mo- almost like slum suburbs of Memphis. Right, right. And, and that is the reason. Right, right. Yeah. Although suburban and rural to some extent, but very impoverished. And, and Toral, Arkansas was largely non-white. And again, my, my father-in-law dealt with them kindly, but firmly to make sure the payments so, came in. So your father-in-law was one of the reasons why after your marriage, uh, you were able to subsist because the square coil wasn't exactly uh, paying enough of your bills. And you were living in one of the... But wait a minute. Square coil raised our weekly amount from $30 to $40 a week while I was there. Yeah. Not a... Not, not a, not a going in 70, 71, 70. I guess that was something, right? That was... It was something. It was something. Plus, I took attendance. So if you took attendance, you got an extra $10 a week. I was very, very punctual. I was the attendance taker. So I got a $10 bonus week for taking attendance. Didn't endear me to many of my co-coilites, but uh, that was what I did. And the learning in coil, now that, right, we skipped your marriage, by the way, which I think you mentioned to me that uh, Rav Nota got a brocha, right? That was was his role in the marriage. And a mitzvah dance. Uh In other words, he stayed till the mitzvah dance, and he, the mitzvah dance was the Rebbe? No, 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 no. Each mechubitika person was called up. And uh, with a gatel, you know, with some distance between him and the kala, they danced in front of the kala. Regular, he did yeah, that wow. too. Again, I, figure, again, huh? I, you know, Rav Nota does have a number of Hasidic relatives. He has a number of ger Hasidim in Yerushalayim that I spent shalashidas with him, and you know, he walked with me to his relative's house, and we had shalashidas together. And of course, after we exited, you should have heard him like dismiss almost every single aspect of the Chassidish Hanogas that they were involved in. He, he was not an ecumenicist when yeah, it came yeah, to these but matters. Again, in his heart, you know, he felt a lot of it was, you know, he, he was not a mystic, uh, although he was a very, you know, fervent believer in, 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 in the holiness that the Jews could accomplish. But he was very, uh, you know, not involved in what he considered, you know, Say silly things right. that he felt were not yeah. meyusid on Torah, but put this way, Rav Nota dancing is an image I have uh, embedded in my in my in my memory forever. Because you know, as everybody would be dancing on on Simchas Torah in a circle, Rav Nota would always be standing outside of the circle, clapping his hands, and his face lifted up in joy every couple of seconds, adjusting his talus one way or the other way. And the talus sort of, to me, came, it became sort of like the cape of a bullfighter. You know, it was almost like, you know, in other words, we're dancing with the Torah and Rav Nota is Matador, the maestro of the whole event. So, yes, I don't want to uh, indicate that he was a Kalta Litvak that I.L. Peretz would make fun of. Uh, he was a, uh, a person with great warmth. So after the Chasana... Chasana, so the Chasana had everybody, had people from Broyas, from Beshraga, 
and obviously from Square, um, Shlomo Hill, and all those people. It was a very eclectic uh, gathering at the Chasim. And, and, and you mentioned, you know, you were able to stay in the Kail. For how many years were you in that Kail? Six. Six and a half. During those six years that you were um, in Kail, did you see it as just Viter in the Bismedrish, or did you start tackling the type of things like when I started in Kail, you know, Hilchas Nida, Hilchas Erevin, like a lot of practical Alakalamaisa things, Ribis that you don't necessarily learn when you're in yeshiva? Or was it basically more of the same, but you were just a married guy? In Square, there were two different kodalim. There was a kodalim yeshiva, which continued with Ramesha Green's focus on Gemara. And there was a kodalim which was in the shul, in the base medrash, in which you were allowed to pursue your own interests, which again included Yoradeya, Hilchah Shabbos, Hilchah things like that. So I was in that kodalim, the base medrash kodalim, where you have a little more freedom in terms of what you might choose to study or not study. Also, there was no kodal at night. So I was able to pursue my other interests uh, a little better in the evenings. And I would call at that time uh, both Jewish and non-Jewish intellectuals, quote-unquote, uh, and to discuss with them my uh, ideological uh-huh. influence. So in other words, after your marriage, you were able to somehow go back to what had been you know, sort of bottled up for a while. Now, you were living in the environs of Square. You were actually you had an apartment in the Square Yisha. Right. The first two, three months after my marriage, we were in Muncie. And then uh, I persuaded all concerned to, that we should move to Square and uh, move to Square in the summer of 1972. Now, I assume whether it was an actual written contract or not, there was a certain understanding that to live within Square, you had to abide by certain internal rules. The famous Takanas. There were Takanas made in Square fairly early on in the history of the village. And then this varied over the years. It's a subject all of its own. But essentially, the Takanas said, uh, we have certain religious standards uh, which you must abide by. The Rebbe is the man in charge. Whatever he says goes. And eventually they added whatever he says goes, even if you happen to be somewhere else, that his hadrachas are kaveya. And these are the famous square takanas. If you didn't sign them, you had to leave within 30, couldn't stay more than 30 days in the village. And just a, a humorous footnote, there was a hardcore meisharem, a Naturikata guy who got married to a girl from square for whatever reason, and they showed him the, the takanas, and he looked at it, and as doing Yiddish, he said, dos, to have such fealty to to the Rebbe. Yeah. So, but you were okay signing it. You were okay accepting it. Yes, absolutely. Despite the, 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 the fact that you were going to go back and tend your intellectual pursuits, you didn't think that they represented a contradiction to, to the spirit of these Takonas, if not their actual words. I was very involved at that point uh, in my later color years with helping out with chavrusas and learning for the weaker Talmidim in Yeshiva. And there was one fellow in Square, one Balobas, who wanted to make that into an official position, that I would be sort of the mashgiach, that I would be the person who would be involved with the weaker Talmidim in Square. Yeshiva. She would be a salaried official position. I was coming to the end of my years, and it seemed to be a very good idea. But another member of the Board of Trustees of Square had heard that I had at one point in time 
defended Rav Cook in a conversation in Kodal. It's like the KGB. Like the, the KGB. How can I possibly, how can we possibly hire somebody who defended Rav Cook in Kodal? So my defender said, okay, let's go visit him. <laughs> we'll, we'll sit in his house. You'll see his home. And we'll talk, and you'll see he's fine. He's a good guy. Okay. Master Hoy, they come to visit me. And we're sitting around for a long time talking. And, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm doing okay. And my, my opponent on the board gets up and starts to look at various svarim. And I happen to have lying around Nechama Leba, which is Perish on Chomish. Afroy, a woman on Chomish, Ramban, Rashi. You should have blamed it on your wife. <laughs> That's an idea. I could have done that. I had a friend of mine in spare who subscribed to the hockey news on his wife's name for that reason. He would blame it on his wife if they came after him. But anyway, well, I, I knew at that point my goose was cooked. So uh, there wasn't much to explain because my defender was equally shocked by this idea of Chumash Be'iyan from a woman. And um, that was the end of this plan. Again, we wouldn't be talking now in my life and the life of hundreds of boys would have been different. Would that have gone through? So the discovery of, of the great Nechama, that was the beginning of your exit from Square once they found this in your bookshelf? Oh, oh that's a, that's a, a much okay, longer you know, we'll get to that at a different time. That. But it sounds like, but let's end today with, I'm going to light the match okay. and Lalo Schifrin's theme. Let's go with that. Here's the matches being lit. Dum, dum. Dum 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 dum. Stephen Hill, Stephen Hill, Stephen, tell me. Dum. So, what was Stephen Hill's connection to you during these so formative years? Well, I think I mentioned the last last show that I had met him in my first visit to Square. He had introduced me to him. And uh, we got very, very close. He was involved in uh, trying to make my bar mitzvah in a kosher way, which he failed. But he visited my parents and he drove me around. And uh, he was, to a large extent, a, a great mentor of mine. And it was at that time that he landed the Mission Impossible job. So he had gone from a a Broadway actor and a, a guest star on many of the shows of the time. I, again, I, I, did, I couldn't uh, contain myself when I heard that he had guest starred on Route 66 and The Untouchables and Ben Casey, Dr. Kildare. I mean, every big show of that time, he had guest starred. So uh, he had a lot. We had a lot to talk about because I want to know all the details. But uh, he, he was very much a uh, Makar of me and uh, drove me around and spoke to me and discussed things with me. And uh, his love for the Rebbe's Ghanavrach, again, is, uh, it was unfathomable, absolutely unfathomable. So I think I got that from him to a large extent. Uh, he was a great inspiration in many ways, just that he could be who he was, that he could go out there and film an episode of Mission Impossible on Tishabov and go back to his trailer and immerse himself in the Kinnis. Again, the, 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 the strength the man had, he was offered to co-star with Steve McQueen in a movie called Sand Pebbles. The Sand Pebbles, yes. The Sand... I was just going to say it might be The Sand Pebbles, but you know your stuff. So he was offered to co-star alongside Steve McQueen. And he told his agent, you know, tell them, I won't be able to film on Shabbos. So the studio got back to him and said, listen, we understand, but if everything goes as we intend, you won't have to. If 
we're over budget and we're scrambling, we'll ask you if in that situation you'd be willing to uh, to film on Shabbos. And I got to know how much money, were extraordinary sums were involved in this. And he said to his agent, tell them absolutely not. So he lost hundreds and, and, of And remember, not being, not, and, and not, being was, not taking these options for films wasn't just yes, that film. Yes. Because basically his whole career went into a tremendous decline. Once, put this way, they Absolutely. replaced him with the wooden Peter Graves, of course, James Arness's younger brother, who's even more wooden than, than his brother. And, you know, Peter Graves, I, you know, really because of Mission Impossible, became almost a household name. Stephen Hill, on the other hand, who uh, really goes into obscurity for so many years afterward. Right. And again, he got an occasional movie here and there, but again, these were death blows to his career. If he would have thought, and again, understand something else here. This is a man, his whole life was dreaming to be a star when it came to, to the theater, when it came to movies, and to be a co-star with Steve McQueen at that point. That would have made him tell them absolutely not. I mean, it's just... There, there are no words for what the man was and what he accomplished. There are no words for. Him. And as he continued to uh, attend uh, the the Bismedrish and be involved in Skver, so you you kept your friendship up with him. He was he was he was someone you could. Right. I, I guess in a way, you know, as much as your Yiddish was was perfected to that point, and you were from the Skver Hever, you must have had a great geschmack to be able to talk with Stephen Hill, right? You were still, you were able to, in the corner, you know, talk about things with that you couldn't talk about otherwise and and see in him a reflection of the path that you had taken. Shleiman never lived in Skvare. He lived in Skyview Acres. Before he got divorced, he lived in Skyview Acres, which was a, a development down Route 45, close to Pomona Road. And um, when he he got divorced, he lived in Muncie, and he got remarried. He lived in Muncie. He never lived in Square. Never. That was that was that no, was no. his that he was, was his spiritual heart was was there. Correct, correct, correct. He once uh, once said to me, this is just a humorous note here. We were once talking. I was there with him, and somebody said something about you know if you forget Yalav Yovo, and you know yeah, so Shlomo said, you know, I actually forgot Yalav Yovo. Three times this past Rosh Chodesh. So somebody says to him, really? What was that like? He said, the Shemun Esra the fourth time was a lot quicker. <laughs> I see. He went back. He was medactic. Um, just one last note. Again, I'm, I'm happy that you had such a great friendship with him. And those of our listeners who dig deep can probably find somewhere online uh, the tribute that you penned for Ami Magazine which was a very, very moving tribute and informative. Square did an article about him in their Yiddish journal, The Iris, and there was a picture of him sitting next to, who did he co-star with in the firm? The big Tom Cruise, right? Was it Tom Cruise? So there was a picture of him sitting next to Tom Cruise. Filmed and in they Memphis, captioned by the way. under it, was it really? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's set, set in Memphis, Memphis yes. maybe, right? And the um, set in Memphis the and, of him saying, Memphis. and just there are there are other films that are supposedly Memphis, but it's not Memphis. So he's in that picture, and they, they gave a picture there. They said that Shlomo is its name, Movishbila, because the name would have yeah. been so irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't describe yeah, him like yeah, a, here a he movie. Is. Of course, uh, Tom Cruise has his own religious. Uh, I think he's a. Um, oh yeah, Arlon Hubbard, right? He's a. Yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's an Arlon Hubbard closet.
Plus, again, isn't he the the current Mission yes, Impossible yes, guy? That is true. Am I wrong? That is true. He he right. is. So yes. he succeeded right, Shlomo yeah, in yeah. that position. I will tell you one thing, and I think I mentioned this to you many years ago in a conversation that you've forgotten. But I think mm-hmm. I mentioned to you that I felt that you could see the tension in in that one season of Mission Impossible roles that Stephen Hill was involved in in the early '60s, including a number of films. There's a certain manic aspect of him you know he sort of plays a super emotional person like like someone who's you can see that the the sparks are going to go off there's something there you know because you know he he wasn't a classic a handsome hollywood leading man but he had a certain explosivity that you saw in him a certain fire that was really in a way toned down a lot in mission impossible it was toned down uh, to the point and they say some of it has to do with the, with the producers themselves, the Gellers, who were, were trying to trim his role. But I think that in uh, you know those final that final uh, stint that he had as Adam Schiff, uh, am I getting the name right? Adam Schiff and yes, in yes in, you uh, are Adam Schiff in Law and Order. Law and Order. I think there you got to see a, a return to to method, strong acting. You got to see him as grumpy. You got to see him as indignant. Uh, you saw it wasn't just, oh, I've got to get these guys together and they're going to work on a mission. But you see, you know, in that role, I don't think he's ever been replaced. I mean, they've had other Diane Weist and other sort of uh, other lesser people have come to be considered that sage mind from a different era. A, a few follow up ideas. Number one, Martin Landau said about him that, um, there were two actors coming up in the 50s. There was Stephen Hill and there was there was Marlon Brando. And we all thought that the big one was going to be Stephen Hill because of that electricity which he generated. That's one. Two, he always said to me that he enjoyed acting much more after he became from because it wasn't the be-all and end-all of his life. The center of his life was God and Torah. And then he acted, he enjoyed acting, but it wasn't, this was his self-definition, and therefore he was able to enjoy it much, much more. I offer you one further reflection on this, that I have a a, a, um, a cousin through my stepfather, whose name is Larry Miller. I know Larry Miller. Actor, I've seen Larry Miller, yes. You know Larry Miller? Sure. So he's, he's my cousin through my stepfather. Now, he was a recurring figure on Law and Order in which he was accused of killing his wife. And each time he was able, through money and finagling, he was able to get off. And finally, when they brought to Stephen Hill the fact that this is the third time or the fourth time that Larry had been accused of murder of his wife. So he got off a line, which is so Stephen Hill of the late era. He said, he said, What's the matter with this guy? Didn't he ever hear of a divorce lawyer? <laughs> well, Tizichroy Boruch, I'm happy that we are able to uh, go down to the Delta a little bit and go back, you know, to Hollywood and, and back. I love this idea that you, you wrote about that they would send the limo for him and make sure he was back in time for Mincha. Tizichroy uh, Boruch, he should, he should have a, a gur alichtigaganaden, uh, bigger, bigger than any of the spotlights of the Hollywood sign. A, a gur gur lichtigaganaden. We'll catch you guys next time as we, uh, we more schmoozing Mayor Nechachamim with uh, Mayor Shore. Take care, everybody. Be well. Kotiv. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.